Uh, she was just um, sweet and nice, very Christian woman. She was very interested in her family and her community. Maxine Fullerton was a 55-year-old grandmother, genealogy enthusiast and occasional gambler. Being a Christian woman, she'd pray for her family as much as she prayed for the Lord's touch on whatever slot machine you played. Aunt Mackie, as they called her, also loved to sew. Her daughter, Robbie Fullerton, recalled a loving mother whose voice echoes today. I remember her as always humming and sounding like a trumpet. Um, and I have a love of music and, and all things and gambling, and that came from her family, too. More than 40 years ago, Maxine Fullerton's life came to a violent end. Robbie, her daughter, was 23 years old. June 6, 1980, my mother was a laundress at the Hillian Strait State Training School for Boys, um, had been for several years, and she was in the laundry um, which were in, at that time in the basements of the cottages uh, where the boys were housed. And a 15-year-old offender um, ran an errand for her to the jeans, went and got some jeans from factory, brought them back to her, um, knocked her backwards in her chair that she was at the sewing machine uh, where she hit her head and then proceeded to... Uh, he raped her, he beat her, he strangled her, and then he took her life with two pairs of scissors to the neck and chest, stabbing her 27 times. So that's where our story starts, is where mom's life ended. For Robbie, the course of her life was set. She dedicated her life to the Department of Corrections in Oklahoma, advocacy for crime victims and keeping her mother's memory alive through a website and blog at victimjusticereform.com. It's a sad story and always will be, but I like to think of it more as not just a story, but a life, life. Um, a life. So it did start sadly and, you know, with no other choice than me and my family embraced it and we made it our destiny. For the Oklahoman and Gannett Media, I'm Josh Delaney. You are listening to Life After Death, Part 5, Destiny. I worked at the sheriff's office there in Cherokee, um, and I worked nights. And so I had done my, done my time and went home, and I was asleep. And the undersheriff uh, knocked on my door at, at about 10.30 and said, he really didn't know what was going on. The, the news that went out was that there was a riot at the training school. Of course, that wasn't it, but um, he woke me up and took me to Helena, and, and he, um, we were just two houses down from the training school, so um, I watched, and that it was surrounded by, um, by the police and the highway patrol, and they were all standing outside their cars with their AR-14s laying on their, their hoods. And that was my first impression, was that mom was in there. Keith Armstrong was serving time at the Oklahoma State Training School for Boys in Helena, Oklahoma. He pleaded guilty to Maxine Fullerton's murder. Now a white-haired inmate who stands six feet four inches tall and weighs about 315 pounds, Armstrong is serving a life sentence at Oklahoma's Lexington Correctional Facility. 
His birthday is December 25th. If he makes it to Christmas, Armstrong will turn 57, having lived two years longer than the woman he murdered. Robbie focuses on her mother's legacy, not the man who took her life. We keep track of him, yes, but not other than at parole time, I don't give him any of my attention or power to him. At parole time, I have to. Other than that, I don't care. We wanted the death penalty, and he was up for the death penalty. Um, He did a blind plea, and all the jurors were sent home, and he did a blind plea, and, um, and the state argued for the death penalty. And the judge said in his ruling that he certainly had no qualms about giving the death penalty, but because of his age and the circumstances that he would never see the death sentence carried out and he didn't want to put the family through all those years of whatever he was thinking it was if he gave him the death penalty so he gave him life at that time life parole was without parole was not an option so what he basically did instead of doing a set a set sentence was that he put us through the years and years and years of parole um, because he said he would do his best not to see him face parole. Well, law is everybody comes up for parole unless it's without parole or death. So um, we would have, my family would have preferred the death penalty. Robbie spent years working in the Oklahoma Department of Corrections, chiefly spearheading the victim services program, communicating with crime victims throughout the state and updating them on a convict's whereabouts. My work at DOC was my life, and my life was my work. I I always said that I was the only one in DOC that really didn't have a clear separation on what was what was the rules and for work and what was the rules for personal. And um, and I worked with some really great people who let me do that because at that time there was nothing for victims. Um, and when victim services was was started, um, they basically, I walked in the door and my boss said, you know what they want, so do it. In some cases, victims wanted mediation to hear from the offender and muster the strength to accept any apologies offered. Many cases involved a family member committing a crime against another person in the home and loved ones wanting broken ties mended. It was rewarding but heartbreaking work. And I was given free reign Um, to do what the victims wanted, victims and survivors wanted, because we didn't have that before, so we just didn't know what was wanted. So I just plugged along and and made it my life, and I thought it was my destiny that I was being there, and so anything I could do to honor my mother's memory, um, I was going to do. And I had great supervisors that let me do it. Rami partakes in a quiet fellowship of grief and grit. Loved ones of murder victims must answer questions the rest of us never consider. How many details about the murder do they want to know? Do they want to see crime scene photos? Every, every family handles it differently. There are some who do not want to know details and others that do. And I think that at parole time, at court time, at any time, um, it's my belief that victims can't make the choices they need to make in the criminal injustice system unless they have all the information. So it's been my experience that the majority 
as painful as it is, um, they want to know information. I had the um, opportunity, I was working at the sheriff's office, and so the file was not kept in the sheriff's office for me to look at, but the district attorney and the district and the uh, sheriff, um, I could ask them anything and they would tell me. Um, they wouldn't volunteer anything, but anything I asked, they would tell me, and we could look at what we could look at. And that's why it was such a shock at the at the second parole hearing when the district attorney at that time said that mom had defense wounds on her arms. And I, we were all shocked um, because I never saw any of that or was told that. So I don't know if that was just at the moment or if that was the truth, but there is an overwhelming need to know, to know everything. And then we can process it where if you don't know, it, it's hard to process it. It was very heartbreaking and shocking to find out something that we did not know. Um, I know that people always mean well that you don't want to see or you don't want to know, but that's really not those good-hearted people's place to say what you or I or any other victim needs. So I think the first part of, of everything is to um, not to tell someone no, but to say, what do you need? And how will their loved ones look at burial? All questions Robbie and her family had to navigate on their own. I saw mom. Um, I wanted to and my brother did. Um, the others didn't. didn't. And then there was a, a, one of her sisters, I believe one of my aunts or an uncle, wanted to see and, and the funeral home called and I said, of course, you know, what, yeah. what they want. But we couldn't have an open casket and um, even for seeing her then, it was completely different because she never wore turtlenecks, but we had to bury her in a turtleneck to cover it up and she never wore makeup, but we had to put makeup on her to cover the bruises. Um, so it really wasn't like it was in life, but I needed to do that, and the others didn't, and that was what, that's what we did. Rami is an advocate and park counselor to countless people struggling with the violent loss of a loved one. She helps them navigate the path she's walked for decades. The question is always why, and for the most part, there's never an answer, because we're not in that space of, of mentality or anything that we just don't, we don't think like that. In recent years, those who favor criminal justice reform have won numerous victories in the Sooner State. Today, we are implementing the will of the people. I truly believe that. On November 4th, 2019, more than 450 people were released from Oklahoma prisons in what state officials said was the largest commutation in U.S. history. The people whose sentences were commuted were serving time for simple drug possession or property crimes that were made misdemeanors after voters in Oklahoma approved state question 780 in 2016. It moves my heart because I know you guys are getting a second chance and you're getting an opportunity to take life back. State lawmakers later passed legislation to provide relief for people who were serving felony prison sentences for crimes that are now misdemeanors under state law. 
However, instead of providing blanket retroactive relief to everyone in prison for those crimes, lawmakers directed the Pardon and Parole Board to create an accelerated, single-stage commutation process to review eligible cases. Staff recommends the board approve and send to the governor that these inmates have their sentences commuted to one year. For those in the audience, if an inmate has served more than a year, including good time credits, they will be eligible for immediate discharge. Makes you tear up, giving hope and giving people second chances. It's unbelievable. In the weeks leading up to the mass release of prisoners, Governor Kevin Stitt's office worked with the Oklahoma Department of Corrections, nonprofit groups, and other community partners to hold transition fairs inside prisons. The fairs were designed to connect people with transitional housing, mental health services, jobs, and other resources. The past uh, several months, uh, my wife Sarah had an idea to bring job fairs inside the prison. Never been done before. Over the last couple months, uh, 28 job fairs took place. Over 700 people, not only in this commutation, but also folks that were within six months of getting out of prison, could come meet churches and nonprofits and talk about housing and education and jobs. And you're going to hear more about that because we really want you to have a successful future. And that's what I want to leave you with is this is the first day of the rest of your life. I was still getting texts on Friday from people in the community saying, how can I help? How can I be one of those services that's offered to people being released? So I want you to know, I'm here today to tell all of you, each and every one of you, that Oklahomans are ready to surround you and help you have a successful life here in our state. While criminal justice reform advocates have praised Oklahoma's efforts, people like Robbie want to know what the Sooner State is willing to do for victims of crime. There are no nonviolent crimes. They're all violent to me. And... Um, and the little crimes, they're still crimes. They're still criminals. You still get jail time for them. There's a reason why Oklahoma locks people up. Um, it's not because they're singing too loud in, in church, as my old sheriff used to say. Robbie recently served a short time on Oklahoma's pardon and parole board. Decades after her mother was murdered, her purpose hasn't waned. She honors her mother's life with a website and a newsletter about what she calls victim's justice reform. Unfortunately, she has an ever-expanding audience. Every day, someone new suffers the same fate as Maxine Fullerton. Victims have always struggled. They've never gotten the support that the criminals have. Um, it's always been an injustice system for us. And... Um, you know, and my mom's right there kicking me in the butt, too, saying, get after it, sister, you're not done. It's, it's a sad story and always will be, but I like to think of it more as not just a story, but a life. Um, a life. So it did start sadly, and, you know, with no other choice than me and my family embraced it, and we made it our destiny. Life After Death podcast series was written by Josh Delaney, produced by Paige Dillard and Nate Billings. Mm -hmm.